0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. What was it like to give birth in the 16th or 17th century? Well, to tell us more, today's guest is Dr Sarah Reed, lecturer in English at Loughborough University and a specialist in early modern culture and women's reproductive health. Following the release of her historical novel, The Gossip's Choice, Sarah joined BBC History Revealed staff writer Emma Slattery Williams to discuss the experience of pregnancy and childbirth
3: in early modern England. How much do people know about childbirth? in England during the early modern period, how much knowledge did they have?
4: I always think that people in early modern England had a lot more knowledge about labour and childbirth than probably we do now. um, If you think about going as a first-time mum to antenatal classes and you've not probably ever been to a labour, you've not heard anybody in labour, you've probably never even, in some cases, touched a newborn or held a newborn Whereas in the early modern period, because everybody gave birth at home, or almost everybody, birth was part of life. And so you wouldn't escape the sights and sounds of birth in this period when you were growing up, childhood, adolescence. You wouldn't be in the birthing chamber necessarily, but you would hear sounds, you'd see people coming and going, you'd... you'd be holding babies, so I, th- I think that people in general had much more of an idea about childbirth than, than we do nowadays. Certainly, where did they
3: get their information from? Was it kind of talking to each other, or just like you said, kind of being around the birthing room?
4: A lot of it was talking and passed down. A lot of it was being around people were giving birth all the time in um, communities. It was a communal activity. So when a woman was in labour, she would gather a group of friends and neighbours, her women, and they would have family. So afterwards, after a delivery, everybody would sit around and chat about what had gone on. And so knowledge was passed down in that way, in a very organic, natural way, I think. So were there early forms of pregnancy tests?
3: Were there, there ways that people thought they could find out if they were pregnant? Oh, yes. Um,
4: So the pregnancy tests didn't actually, didn't even have any um, accurate pregnancy tests until the mid-20th century. So the ways that you would think about whether you were conceived or not in the early modern period were by seeing how your body reacted to to, um, things. So they knew, obviously, that if you missed a period or two, that it was likely that you were pregnant. But missed periods weren't really the main thing that people thought about. Because You could miss periods for all sorts of reasons they thought Um, and so they'd be looking for other things like um, if you had sickness or if you had swollen breasts and things like that and getting an overall picture but you didn't know for certain that you were pregnant really until about four months when you'd had um, what we still call quickening that moment where you feel the first flutterings of a baby in your belly in early modern England that had a huge significance because for some people it felt it was felt that that was the moment that a soul entered the fetus's body Um, and so you know you had confirmation that it was a living being within you but also for for, for the pregnant woman it gave them that sense that yes I am actually pregnant I'm not imagining things and (laughs) these are what all these symptoms add up to it's real
3: now. What did churching and confinement mean? Because I think these are terms that we
4: associate
3: with pregnancies
4: in the past. They are the terms that keep coming up, don't they? Confinement's one of those um, words that's a later word that gets applied backwards, if you see what I mean, onto the early modern period. So it's true to say that upper class women would go into sort of seclusion into their bedchamber for a period in anticipation of their labour. But that wasn't what most women did. Most women carried on with their everyday lives out of necessity until the point of delivery. But confinement is a term that came into being in this context in the late 18th century, actually. And that was because society was trying to become a lot more polite in those terms and didn't want to... Refer directly to childbirth; it was a bit vulgar, so they would talk about um, women's confinement as a as a, a euphemism, if you like. But yeah, the the actual process of going into this sort of what we would call a confinement happened on a class basis it wasn't something that was um, common to most people I would say so we hear about it a lot don't we in historical dramas and in, in Tudor things about you know queens going into their confinement to, to wait for their delivery when they'd be shielded from the outside world when the curtains were drawn and a fire was lit and it was a time of contemplation in anticipation of a ever successful delivery but as I say it's not something that featured much in ordinary women's lives. It was a luxury that most couldn't afford. Whereas churching was more universal. Churching is something that actually was quite political throughout the um, early modern period. So in the times before Henry VIII's Reformation, churching was a ceremony where the woman who'd given birth went to church to be ceremonially washed away of her sins of of labour, all linked back to Eve's sin. In the Garden of Eden. After the Reformation, there was um people wanted to keep the ceremony, but they 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 did reinvent it, if you like, as a ceremony, a celebration, um, to say thank you to God for a safe delivery. So rather than being something that took away a taint, um, a stain of sin, it was a Thanksgiving ceremony. But it endured um throughout the early modern period, it just was slightly. Uh, envisaged to work in a slightly different way depending on uh, where you sat on the religious spectrum uh, from Catholicism to Protestantism and the way that you thought about it. So at different periods throughout the 17th century it had different practices, some some um, high church and Catholic faiths Thought that women shouldn't even enter a church until after she'd been through this ceremony until she'd been church because she wasn't clean, whereas others know it was part of being received back into the congregation and it was all um, a communal celebration that she was she'd got through her ordeal, she was alive and well, and with God's help she'd survived to, to tell the tale.
3: Just going back to the confinement there mm. for the nobility, mm. how far along in their pregnancy would they be expected to go into seclusion?
4: It varied. Um, there's different accounts of different um, of different members of the aristocracy, um, but anything up to a few weeks, and it's quite it's quite a hard thing to think about. I think for for a modern woman, the idea that you'd be cut off from the outside world for a few weeks in a darkened room and in lots of ways, it would make you very un- unprepared for a, a physical ordeal that labour, I mean, you know, labour is a physical process and keeping active and healthy beforehand is one of the best ways of preparing your body. But in, in um, the thinking about um, aristocratic women was that they were generally weaker constitutionally than your average woman because, you know, that to do with the fact that they were aristocratic and um, more refined and so they needed to be shielded in that sort of a way. But there was also things that they would do during this time to help prepare their bodies. So they would they might have baths in medicated waters with you know certain herbs and and flowers added that would sort of soften or was thought to soften the body to make the delivery more smooth. So they might be doing some active things while they were in uh, confinement. But generally, it was you know it was keep everybody away and this quiet period she wasn't alone obviously she'd have her women with her so she'd have her uh, waiting women her entourage if you like so it it wasn't that she was alone it was just that she was cut off from the outside world. It does sound quite a lonely time though doesn't it? Yeah it it must have been a very disorientating process because you know it, it came part and parcel with having the curtains drawn and with the fire on high you know banked up roaring away. So quite uncomfortable in lots of ways if you you were expecting in sort of spring and
3: summertime. Absolutely. So who would you go to when you're about to give birth?
4: Would it be a physician or would it be a midwife? Nearly all women were delivered by a midwife. Um, There was no equivalent of antenatal care in the era. So you only went to see your midwife or a physician or a surgeon or any medic if you had a problem in, in pregnancy, it was just assumed for the rest of the time that you took good care of yourself and that you called for a midwife when the labour pains, the contractions had started. But yeah, as I say, most women, by far the vast majority, were delivered by their local midwife. There could be two kinds, really, of midwife practising. So you had your trained midwife, and she was trained by apprenticeship not by nowadays it's a degree as well as the uh, hands-on experience isn't it so it's a it's a joint process but you know it's seen as a discrete professional skill you have to go to university to study for interestingly only early modern times trainee midwives who were called deputy midwives studied for a similar amount of time to that which trainee midwives do today so um a three four year degree course midwives in the past studied for a three to six year apprenticeship and the apprenticeship was very much hands-on it was practical it was learning an art um which is what all sort of hands-on trades were like artisan trades so you you learned the art of midwifery by watching, by learning from somebody who was doing. And at the end of your training, you went through a licensing process that was run by the church, um, not by a medical board. And you went before the bishop. And to go before the bishop for for licensing as a midwife, you needed testimonials of about six women you successfully delivered. So when you got to the end of your years as a deputy, the midwife you were working for, apprentice to, would let you... Take over on purpose so that you could then gather testimonials from women who you delivered, who could say that you were good at the job and you'd help them. And these women would um, would sign, or oh, their husbands would would um, testify in their place quite often. And you had to swear a midwife's oath before the bishop, which included things like promising to not distinguish between rich and poor, so not be called away from a poor woman's delivery. To go and attend to a rich woman, for example, it made you promise that if a baby died in its in birth, that you would give it a decent burial. Because if it was delivered before it could be baptized, it couldn't go through and be buried in the sanctified ground in a churchyard. Um, but you'd make sure that you gave it a, a decent burial and made sure it was properly, deeply buried so that it couldn't be dug up by a pig or a, um, a dog. Is what the actual midwife's oath says. So it was a church process again. So, we, you know, we're back to ideas about churching. But just again, it shows you how involved the church was in everyday life in the 17th century. And the other kind of midwife who was around was called a hand woman. It's the same sort of thing as farm hand, you know, um, that that sort of um, derivation. And hand women weren't trained in the same way that midwives, licensed midwives were. They hadn't gone through a formal apprenticeship. They might have worked alongside a midwife. They might just be an older woman in the area who'd been to lots of deliveries and was skilled and had the practical skills. But between them, hand women and midwives delivered the vast majority of women. If things went wrong, say there was a malpresentation and the woman was in difficulties, the baby was in difficulties, and it was beyond the midwife's capabilities to intervene, Then the local barber surgeon might be called for who could um, carry out a surgical procedure. Maybe he could um, use some instruments and and to help pull the baby out. Um, But things like forceps that weren't part of a midwife's kit at this time, that came to being much later.
3: I think that's quite surprising. Um, I think we have this assumption that if you had a baby, it was just delivered by a woman in the village who had delivered a lot of babies. Did it depend on your class whether you got a licensed midwife or not?
4: No, it didn't depend on your class. It depended on availability, who was around. So in big towns you might have three or four midwives. In um, a small town there might just be one uh, midwife, or oh, there might be no licensed midwives. And you say it was the local woman, the hand woman, who delivered everybody. So it, it depended on availability more than anything. Coming back to class, if you were a member of the aristocracy, then you may have a physician attend. But physicians um, weren't all that; they weren't all that plentiful because they were university educated. They weren't all that hands-on generally. But aristocratic families liked to have them at their deliveries um, as a status symbol, um, and also, over you know, to, to, because they thought that they would. Prevent anything from going on, but generally, even under a midwife, uh, a physician's supervision, that it would be the midwife who delivered the infant. So this
3: does sound like it was very much a woman's world. What was the
4: father's role? Were they ever allowed in the room? Not really. Um, it wasn't a father's place. They would they would have felt like a fish out of water in the all female environment of a birthing chamber. It was a very female environment. So you had the labouring woman and her group of friends, her gossips as they were called, who supported her. The father's role was practical in terms of it would be him who would go and send for the midwife. As soon as the woman felt her labour pains starting, it would be him who would send for her women, gather everybody round. And and so very much also looking after the children and keeping things going, because a lot of um, people worked at home in cottage industries, so holding the fort was the father's role. and 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 seeing the practical aspects, so it wasn't as though uh, while they weren't in the birthing chamber, they were still in the home generally.
3: So during this period, what were the rates of survival for a,
4: for a mother and a child? the rates of survival for women is much higher than people think actually so um, one study for example and it tends to be fairly representative of several that I've seen says that the um, death rate between 1650 and 74 is um, the death rate was 17 per thousand so 1.7 um, percent it's under 2 percent which is still high for us so, I mean the idea that we we all might know in our circle, or if you think about how many Facebook friends you've got, for example, you know, if the, if that number's in hundreds, then you might know one or two women who died in childbirth is shocking to us, but it's still much lower than perhaps popular myth puts out there. For babies, almost a quarter of them didn't survive their first year, which is, again, it's something that is beyond our comprehension, really, isn't it, in terms of the emotional toll that would have taken on women um and their families on, on fathers as well. And and it did. And there's no doubt about that. It used to be very fashionable um, 50 years ago to write about how sort of emotionally closed off families were so that they because they knew that they would lose a certain proportion of their children, that they didn't um love them in the way that we love our children. But that's just not historically Representative at all. People were devastated by losing their children. um And the the the, the thing is that if a, up to a quarter of them would die in infancy before one, and then a third oh just over a third of children wouldn't make it to the fifteenth birthday. So I suppose what we what we can do to be a little bit more upbeat is to say almost two thirds of children made it past fifteen into adulthood. <laughs> That's a slightly slightly happier way of thinking about it, I suppose.
3: What were the common causes of things going wrong during during labour at this time?
4: Yeah, uh things did go wrong. And I think that's the biggest difference, you know, between then and now is that while the vast majority just like now of labours are straightforward and result in a you know the mother's fine and the, the baby is is born problem free. The Biggest difference between then and now is that when something went wrong, there wasn't really much chance of a happy outcome. And the sorts of things that could go wrong would be perhaps a malpresentation, the baby presenting in an awkward way that made it very difficult for them um, to be born. But midwives were were very skilled at um, manipulating babies. They were much, much more hands on than um, a midwife nowadays would want um, to Encourage in terms of always putting their hands in and examining examining the woman. So, um, if anybody's had recent experience in a maternity unit, you know that midwives like to limit the number of physical examinations for fear of introducing infection. Quite rightly, um, in the early modern times, women midwives were much more um, <laughs> much more keen to uh, insert their hands into checking where things were. But part of that meant that they, they became very skilled with their hands at manipulating um, babies. And, and they could usually get out of most predicaments like that by manipulating um, the, the infant in such a way that they could get, get their child out. But things that are, that are still emergencies nowadays, like uh, placenta previa, uh, where the placenta is in front of the cervix, so blocking the exit, or placental abruption which is you know life threatening emergency nowadays were were invariably fatal because there was nothing surgically that anybody could do to to stop that from killing the mother so it was a question of well things um progress normally in well over 90% of cases when things went wrong there was often an, uh, an unhappy outcome and that it was when things were going wrong that you would send for backup in terms of the barber surgeon um, and seeing if there was anything that, that he could do because he would be a man um, to intervene
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast
4: And that people were very ignorant and people weren't at all ignorant Um There was an awful lot of um, knowledge passed around in groups. People had a really good working knowledge of medication in terms of herbal medicines um, and how to mix really quite complicated treatments. So they might make what they call simples, which have only got one ingredient.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate?
2: Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get ten percent off your first month. That's betterhelp h e l p.com slash history extra.
3: Were cesareans ever used? And if so, presumably that would be extremely risky for the mother, especially with with Mm. infection and
4: Yeah. Yeah, so you hear, there are, there are always um, perennial anecdotes about somebody performing a successful caesarean, but not really, there weren't something that were, was part of life and, you know, vanishingly small examples of it. Where they were used is if the mother had died and there was any possibility at all of saving the infant, then, then, they, then they were um, performed to, to, to quickly whip the baby out. So that's the only the only example you see normally in midwifery textbooks about when um when such a thing is permissible or even possible. So what kind of medical instruments did
3: they use during examinations and labor?
4: Um so during examinations and labor one of the main pieces of equipment which again is coming back round into into common usage is the birthing chair. And this is um very much like an armchair or it could be something that looks more like um a dairy stool a three legged stool um but the chair had a horseshoe hole cut in it so that um when the woman sat sat upon it the the birth passage was was free and the midwife would kneel down in front of the laboring woman to do her examinations and so and also she would remain in that position to deliver the infant into her arms um, and the chair was part of a midwife's equipment quite often she would either see that it was taken to a client a few days before delivery um was anticipated or bring it with her um in a sort of portable form actually when she was called um so midwives sometimes had a nickname in the era mother's chair because they were they were um, sort of seen as synonymous with their chair um But failing that, women would sit on the edge of their bed for examinations, so getting into a similar position. And that's when her gossip to female attendants came into their own because they would sit behind her and hold her up um, and give her that physical support. Um, Other equipment midwives have are recognisable with midwifery today. So scissors, of course, we we know that midwives have their scissors ready for cutting the umbilical cord, but also in terms of making um, little cuts if they need to. And midwives had a range of hooks that they might use uh, for breaking waters, but might also use in the case where an infant had passed away in the uterus uh, for, for helping get them out. Um, but often they use their hands. So for if they wanted to break the waters, um, where a little crochet hook could be used or scissors could be used, midwifery books will say, well, be careful with things like that so you don't nip the infant. And the midwife would often prefer to use her fingernails in that, that, that circumstance. That's interesting that you said the the birthing chair
3: is is coming back in use. So they obviously did have a lot of knowledge that was that was useful.
4: Yes, they did. I mean, the the main thing that they they knew that was useful is is the the key to keeping active. Women wandering uh, up and down their birthing chambers is one of the things you see repeatedly written about in midwifery guides between labor pains, so between her throes as they used to call them, and if she could keep upright and if you could keep active to that extent so take a little bit of exercise in between contractions maybe sit down when when the pain was upon us sitting in the chair and we know that 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 where it's possible that does help um and yeah so we see birthing chairs in lots of delivery suites now um and similar similar to the the balls that they have which women can sit and they're all getting get the pelvis into a good position for for a natural delivery
3: so this period was often people still held on to certain superstitions and things were there any kind of charms or say magical objects people used to used to use to help them have a safe delivery
4: yeah again it comes around to ideas about pre and post reformation and different ends of the religious spectrum so before the um the reformation of henry the 8th and the invention of the Church of England, it was very, very common to have amulets and to have superstitious objects that women would cling on to in birth or wear about on their person during pregnancy and labour to help. Uh, Those went out of favour in the post-Reformation period. They were thought to be superstitious and therefore they weren't encouraged. But they, that didn't mean they went out altogether. But in the previous period, so you would have things like girdles, for example, that might have that were made out of paper that might have prayers written on them, and their woman would wear around her belly in the last weeks of labour, uh, last weeks of pregnancy, and into her labour. Um, There was one example at um, a priory that's just uh, in the Midlands, just up the road from where I am, at Grace Drew Priory. And it was the girdle of St. Francis that women would borrow when they were in labour and they would tie it around themselves. And it was said to take away their pain. And and women um, pre-Reformation believed in these things. But some things carried on. So one piece of equipment that a midwife might bring with her is something called an eagle stone. Which is a geode, it's a naturally occurring rock, and it's um, it, the best way to visualize it is to think about, you know those little balls that cats play with that's got a little bell inside, but is a, a ball, and they yeah, that's what an eagle stone's like, um, so it's a, a rock with a little rock inside it. and this um, was thought to have all sorts of properties and thought to work really effectively. Um, so if a woman wore an eagle stone attached to her belly it would was thought to help prevent miscarriage in labour it might be strapped around her thigh to encourage the um the fetus out and they were thought to be very effective and you had to use them with care so that carried on right through the 17th century past all the religious changes um, and and was acceptable no matter where you stood really on the on the religious spectrum so i think i think that's interesting that these artefacts some of them did did survive being outlawed, if you like, um, and, and were were held in high esteem by reputable practitioners. You know, so you know, your your fully licensed, um, highly esteemed midwife would carry an eagle stone with it and generally believe in its um, effectiveness. Was there any pain relief available for birthing mothers? Yes, how effective it was um, is a mute point, but there was lots. So it was expected that women would have some pain in labour because of Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden and it being her punishment. So women expected to experience some pain. What wasn't acceptable was excruciating pain, uh, unbearable pain. And midwives had a lot of... um, lot of ways of 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 dealing with that most of the um, pain relief was designed to open up the passages of the body to help the pregnant the labor along and so they would start off with something very gentle like a cordial like a drink um, with some cinnamon in it maybe the idea being that you're just just opening up the body a little bit Um, and they would progress to stronger and stronger versions of um the same sorts of things so you might get um a mix of saffron in some wine and sack which is a very sweet fortified wine um with some powdered herbs and and cinnamon again um ditany things like that and designed to calm and relax the woman um but also to open up a body um but you can see that the 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 strong wine would have a relaxing effect again and, and maybe if um some of the anxiety was taken away her pains might lessen and they could go up though to things like a fume which they used to place in a heated chafing dish so that um and, and put some items in it things like ambergris, musk and burn them in a chafing dish so like um with a flame underneath the dish and the fumes would rise up and they pop that underneath the birthing chair and the fumes would rise through the hole in the birthing chair and go into uh, the the woman's vagina and and have the same effect as the pain relieving medications that she might take um, by mouth, but working directly on the passages. So there was all sorts of things that we tried. It wasn't as though anybody just left women struggling Um, and, and, so the the treatments could even go up to opiate based medications that we know um would be effective um we often get this this
3: idea that um even even now in some respects the woman's body was was a mystery to to physicians um how how much did they actually understand about the female reproductive system and you know exactly what happened how much pain women were expected
4: to to experience Uh, physicians they had a good working theoretical knowledge of women's bodies the 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 theories about um women's bodies well and men's bodies went back to ancient times and to be a physician you had to complete um, a university postgraduate education in uh, medicine so all Physicians did a humanities degree to um, make sure that they had got a good working knowledge of um, classical texts. But then they would do postgraduate medical studies, and that would involve studying ancient texts. So, um, Hippocrates, um, the corpus that came out at that time, Galen, Aristotle, and all that was um, for 2000 years informed medical practice. So, there were mistaken ideas in there that kept being repeated Um, so theoretical knowledge is one thing but as I said I think earlier physicians tended to be quite hands-off they would very often diagnose conditions um by letter by listening listening to symptoms but not really getting um that sort of hands-on involvement that that midwives were known for so midwives uh, medics medical men doctors could could actually be Less knowledgeable and um less less competent when it came to women's bodies than the women who routinely helped each other and the you know the the hand women who would have the knowledge of herbs and what would take away pain or you know right from everyday pains like period pains right through to helping with labor pains so yeah there was a there was a di- definite difference
3: what would you say are the biggest mis- misconceptions uh, we have about women's bodies and and
4: childbirth during the early modern period? I think the biggest misconceptions are that everybody died, you know, that it was um fatal <laughs> almost all the time, when in actual fact most people got on with it um and, and were fine. Um and so you see that myth quite a lot um coming backwards and forwards. And that people were very ignorant and people weren't at all ignorant. Um there was an awful lot of um knowledge past rounding groups people had a really good working knowledge of medication in terms of herbal medicines um and how to mix really quite complicated treatments so they might make what they call simples which are, have only got one ingredient so a cordial with just some cinnamon in would be a simple cordial then they might make complex ones which has got several ingredients mixed together in all sorts of different ways right up to distillation so you would see um, even quite aristocratic women being skilled in, in in distillation and making refined medications like that. So so this this again comes back to the side that people were ignorant. In actual fact, people were very knowledgeable uh, and quite skilled in ways that you know um, we don't we don't really always acknowledge. Yeah, I think we
3: we maybe under, underestimate people of the past sometimes, don't mm. we? And I think it's interesting what you said about. Um, how how it affected them when they when they lost the child because I think we still do think that because people were having so many more children than we do today, and that family life was quite different that it wouldn't have affected them as much. They would have seen it as part of life that they would lose a child. But you are saying that it, it is clear that it, it would have affected affected the whole the whole family.
4: Oh, absolutely, it did. I mean, there's some harrowing. Um messages in diaries um, and letters that remain multitudes of them from people writing about losing children. So um, Lady Anne Fanshawe wrote about losing one of her children and how her and her husband wanted to jump in the grave. They were so distraught. And and that just brings it home, doesn't it? It still gives me goosebumps when I think about that. Uh, John Evelyn, the, the diarist who was friends with Samuel Pepys, lost um, a daughter in her teens to smallpox and wrote about how devastated absolutely devastated he was at her loss he was very close to his um daughters and 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 so you know right from infants to to teenage children we've we've got accounts of people being um distraught so you mentioned
3: earlier that a woman's attendants were known as gossips Mm. and that leads quite nicely onto your your first novel which is called the gossips choice which was published last year Mm. firstly before you tell me about the book what why were they called gossips it derives
4: from um, the same root as godparent, interestingly enough. So it was sort of God's helper. So you're there in God's place. Um, and this then gets shortened to God's sip, which both godparents and um, gossips were known as. Um, and so, yeah, so you were there to support a woman through labour. So you were doing God's work <laughs> in helping her that's where gossips came from but then of course it has the unfortunate connotation that all these women locked in a room what were they talking about all day and it could be could be quite a bawdy environment you know lots of um, rude jokes going around and that's where we get the sort of idea of um, gossiping Uh, comes from as we use it um, from worries about what women might have been talking about.
3: So your book is about uh, a midwife working during the Great Plague of 1665. Yeah. How did the plague affect the experience of childbirth?
4: Um, Well, we're lucky in that we've got an account of that from um, Daniel Defoe, the 18th century author. He wrote um, the uh, Journal of the Plague Year and his character, his narrator in that, says that one of the most awful, in his opinion, side effects of the plague ravaging the city was that women were left without without any neighbouring women or without a midwife to attend them and had to give birth on their own. Um, And this could be for a number of reasons. It could be because... They simply had lost people to the plague there weren't um, any midwives around. It could be that people didn't want to go into other people's houses, uh, as something that we can now um, visualise and, and empathise with in ways that even two years ago we couldn't. Um, you know, that, that fear of going into somebody else's house or being forbidden to go into somebody else's house. Uh, and HF, the narrator of the Journal of the Plague Year, he, he talks about how harrowing it was to hear labouring women crying out for assistance and not receiving any.
3: So what made you decide to embark on writing a novel based on your research?
4: Because doing the research, I found all these fascinating stories and the incidents in the book, as as bizarre as some of them will seem to a modern reader, are all based on true stories. So a lot of the incidents I've taken from the case notes of a midwife who worked in Somerset in the early 18th century called Sarah Stone. And Sarah Stone worked in Bridgewater. She worked in Truro. She um, worked in Bristol and then latterly in London. And she published in 1737, she published 40-odd case notes of cases where things had gone wrong, but she'd gone in and um, saved the day. Um, but it gave me so much um, material for a, as a novelist because the case notes are very basic they might be say 200 words and they'll just say a farmer's wife um was called in they're all the all the women are always um noted by in terms of their husbands so uh, from a novelist perspective you've got the opportunity to fashion a whole character so for example in one incident um sarah stone was called to bloomfield's farm um Well, in my novel there, I take the name of the farm as their family name. So it becomes Jenny Bloomfield, who's got the problems. Um, And and I can expand the 200 word bold case note into a whole 3000 word chapter about the story. Because from the case notes, you don't get any sense of the feelings of the laboring woman. You don't get any sense of what the women around were doing and feeling and what the midwife did, um, actively did. Because Sarah Den doesn't quite tell you what she
3: did. How different did you find writing the novel compared to academic writing?
4: Mm -hmm. It was a learning curve. Um, So (laughs) in academic work, we're taught concision, uh, get to the point, Um, cite lots of sources (laughs) in writing a a novel you've got to do in some respects the opposite you've got to take people gently into your world so that they can see um, and they can feel and they can almost taste and smell what's going on around them so all those are different skills that that you have to practice and and get used to using Um, to showing and telling uh, in all sorts of different ways But it was a hugely enjoyable process and and one I'm so glad I did. It's a way of getting these stories out there in a way that, you know, if I'd have published in a journal article um, about Sarah Stone, which I mean I have, it would be read by a handful of people, whereas doing it this way, it's a story that people can relate to. Do you have any more novels in the pipeline? Yes, there's a sequel. Um, I originally planned um, the Gossip's Choice storyline, but it's taken two books to write because I found that there was a whole book in the first what was going to be part one was actually a whole book um so the sequel called the midwife's truth and that's a bit of an exclusive for you there I don't think I've I've said the title anywhere else it's um, going to come out in April next year
0: that was Dr Sarah Reed her novel The Gossip's Choice is out now published by Wild Pressed Books the sequel is due to be published next year Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Newitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow when Tom Standage will be charting the long history of motion and transport. Are you enjoying the History Extra podcast and want to delve a bit deeper into history? Why not take out a subscription for BBC History magazine? Britain's best-selling history magazine, and receive a brand new book of your choice worth £25. Choose from either Powers and Thrones by Dan Jones, a signed edition, The Anglo-Saxons by Mark Morris, Crown and Scepter by Tracy Borman, or Soldiers by Max Hastings. Your subscription includes delivery of every issue right to your door. Receive all of this for just £22.45 every six issues. To take advantage of this fantastic offer, visit our official online store at buysubscriptions.com forward slash myhistorybook. This promotion is only available for UK residents and while stocks last. See our website for further details. Overseas subscription prices are available online.